Good morning and uh, welcome to Chanel. We're so glad that you're here with us. Joining us online, welcome as well. Uh, years ago, uh, I went on probably the worst mission trip that I've ever been on. Um, and a lot of it was my fault um, because I said yes. I don't know if you've ever been in those situations where uh, after you've agreed to do something, you're like, why am I doing this? And so uh, years ago at my old church, this is not a, if you go on a trip with Hankins, Hankins is an excellent leader in Honduras. Um, I, no, I was, I was, Hankins is a superb leader. Uh, we called him Jefe Jefe, if you're familiar with the, the Spanish translation there. Um, but an, honestly, excellent job with Hankins in Honduras. This is at my previous church. Uh, we had a bunch of guys who wanted to do both a dental and a medical mission trip which is excellent, like needed in those communities, something that we absolutely should have done. Not anything that I had any business going to. Um, as Whitney found out on our honeymoon when I said, hey, we're going to go to Costa Rica, I speak enough Spanish. Um, I don't. Um, I don't speak Spanish very well. As the Spanish would say, no bueno is kind of the extent of my Spanish language. And so the, the minister, the, the team came to me and they said, hey, we want a minister to go with us on this medical and dental trip. And I remember looking at one of my elders and saying, like, who else works here that should go to this? Because who, it's like, who said no before me? Like, how has it gotten to me? And they were like, no, we, we think that you need to go with us. And I said, well, just so we're clear, I've not gone to medical or dental school. Uh, and I was like, I have really no business around it. I, I get squirmish around those situations. But they're like, no, we need you to go. And at this point, it was, it was just adults, too. I was working in student ministry. There were no teens going. And like, again, the whole time, I'm like, what are y'all seeing in me that I don't see? Why do you think that I need like, a seat on this plane? And, and they were the, the medical and dental mission trips, if you're interested, all those stay in nice hotels, too. Um, they're not slumming it. And so we go to this hotel, we're there, and the whole time I'm like, why am I here? I have no business here. And then on the first day of the mission trip, I realized why they drug me down to Honduras. They decided, these wonderful dentists and, and doctors, decided that these people, if you've been to Honduras, you've been in these kind of these third world countries where medical and dental missions show up, people line up. I mean, often it's, it's down the street because this may be the only medical or dental care that they get. And what these beautiful guys decided to do was to hold these people hostage with the Word of God. And so, when they were, yeah, some of you are catching on, when, when some of these people were waiting to have their, their teeth fixed or have a, you know, an illness looked at, they thought, what if we put you in the waiting area and you preached at these people? And I thought, this is bad, because I don't speak Spanish. Uh, I can read a little Spanish, but not a lot. And so, this is legit what I did for the first three days before I was like, I'm out of here. I can't do this. I want to build a house or do something else. I'll hold a scalpel. Just don't make me do this anymore. For three days, I like hostage preached at these people in English, um, which, if you've ever been to a doctor or a dentist, the thing that people aren't clamoring for is evangelism, right? You're like, I've got a root canal I need fixed. I don't need to know, the, you know your sarcastic version of Ephesians, Bryce. 
And I remember the third day finally going up to one of the elders and being like, look, there's so many other things that I could be doing that are way more, like, like more just important that we could be doing. And also, it would help my anxiety so much. Because at the third day, the people were just like, boo. Like, why is he here? He's not adding anything to this. He's not a dentist. He's not a doctor. We're not even sure how old he is. Why is he here? And if you've ever been in those situations where you just kind of feel underqualified, where you feel like, hey, I don't have any business being here. Like, I'm with you. And that's really where I'm, I'm wanting to start this new series this morning called To the Ends of the Earth. Because we are called to go and do things. Sometimes it may not look like we want it to look like, Sometimes we may feel like we have no business preaching in English to a bunch of Spanish-speaking individuals who just want their teeth fixed. But God is calling us and putting us in places and positions to share the gospel in beautiful and unique ways that, that often like, are our voices. And so this morning I want to start looking at Matthew chapter 28, which is where we receive the Great Commission. And that'll be the, the text we look at for a little bit. We'll be in Matthew 28, as well as Acts chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But the story begins, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I'm, I'm going to break this down kind of step by step, because I, I don't want us to overlook these small details that the Scripture gives us. You've got eleven guys who have dedicated their entire existence and being to following Jesus. Now, in, in their minds, Jesus has gone. Think about that for just a second. Everything that you have hinged and anchored your life on is now disrupted. And these are not, as we, we were leaning into on Sunday mornings, is the people in the, the lineage of Jesus are not always the best, most perfect individuals. Often they are broken. They are confused, they are doubters, and they still have a place in the line of Jesus. The individ- these 11 individuals, these are fishermen who quit their jobs. They're tax collectors whose society has said, we're good. Like, these are not just the best and the brightest individuals, but they are who Jesus has chosen to be around because Jesus is saying, hey, if these guys can be a part of this, so can you. Paul is the best at communicating that mentality of God. Or Paul constantly reminds us that I am the worst of these. If God can welcome me, so can he welcome you. And so we we get these 11 guys who have given up everything to follow Jesus. And they go to this mountain that Jesus tells them to go to. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Again, when we talk about who is welcomed at the table of God, you don't have to be perfect You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have your life figured out in this way where everything looks pristine and perfect and it's the perfect Instagram post. You don't have to. You have a seat at the table. Because even those in Matthew 28, there's some that doubt. They don't believe it. They can't fathom how this could possibly be. And then in verse 18, we receive what we call the Great Commission. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
As a kid growing up in a church of Christ, I heard this passage a lot. Uh, I, I remember that the, the preachers growing up loved to use this a lot. And, and I think we like to use this passage a lot because it is exciting. It's a, a commission. We are being told that we can go and do beautiful and amazing things that God takes hold of. But there's also a part of me that when I hear this now, it's like watered down. And I've thought a lot about that this this week as I I worked through this sermon. Why is that? Why does this passage that is supposed to encourage, it's supposed to push, it's supposed to motivate us, why do we read it now and we're like, okay, yeah, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, like, and I'm playing with it just a little bit, but you guys understand where I'm going with this. I think there's a lot that's happening in this passage that Jesus is telling these 11 individuals that are broken. They are doubters. They are individuals that, that need guidance. He's saying, I'm telling you that you've got what it takes to go. I'm giving you the ability. I'm commissioning you. You now have the Holy Spirit within you and, the Holy, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And not only that, you have this this element there that Jesus is saying, I will be with you. When you fear, when you misstep, when you make those mistakes that you don't realize that you did and maybe you hurt somebody, I'm with you. I'll guide you. I'll heal you. It's a powerful verse that challenges us. But for some reason or another, it's been watered down just a little bit. To explain this point, I want to talk about Thailand. I mentioned last week that I I don't anticipate my transitions getting better in any sermon. Uh, I'm just going to go hard in the paint with them, and if you're with me, you're with me. And so for this, I I want to talk just a little bit about the country of Thailand, pictured here. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to Thailand. I have never been to Thailand. Um, I'm interested in it because it is a beautiful country. Beautiful landscapes and geography, beautiful beaches here. Um, But there's also a a part of Thailand that I'm very interested in um, that, just so you know, has nothing to do with the sermon. It's the city called Lombora. Uh, It is called the Monkey City. Uh, The Monkey City uh, is a a city in, um, excuse me, in Thailand where the monkeys have taken over. Um, There are so many monkeys in this particular city that the government of Thailand is like, we've got a monkey problem. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in life or social situations where you've had a monkey problem, um, but these guys have one. Uh, I've been in one particular monkey problem, again, in Costa Rica, where monkeys almost overtook our vehicle. It's a different story, a different day. I'll find a sermon to fit it in. But love this about it. I'm not really going to go there. They've overtaken these shrines as well to the point that the tourism department said these monkeys are making it so dangerous and difficult for tourists to come to Thailand. We've got to do something about these monkeys. Now, spoiler alert, they haven't yet. These monkeys are smarter than they think. But that's not at all why I want to talk about Thailand. We can talk about the monkeys later if you'd like to. But the reason why I want to talk about Thailand is because of something called Gastro diplomacy. Yes, this is food related. I love any type of weird story that I can find that is related to food. 
And I think that I found one. Because gastrodiplomacy is something that a lot of countries use. But there's probably no country better than Thailand that has emphasized the need for gastrodiplomacy. So, around the 1970s, Thai food was not popular at all. In, the, in London, England, there were only four places that you could get Thai food in London. But, if you remember, you've got Vietnam happening, excuse me, around that same time frame. And so people are being introduced, especially like uh, individuals that have gone and fought in Vietnam, are being introduced to a new cuisine that they've never been exposed to before, for the first time in their lives. And so then they come back stateside, and they start looking for Thai food. They can't find it anywhere. It's not popular in the United States. It's not really popular anywhere globally other than Thailand and these four places in London. And so for the, the next several decades, Thailand is looking for ways to how do we expose people to the Thai culture, Thai food, and potentially getting them to come visit Thailand. And so in 2002, the government of Thailand decides they're going to embrace something called gastro-diplomacy. And what they do is they say, the first thing that we need to do is we need to find a national dish, which is where they come up with Pad Thai. You've probably had that before. It's a very popular Thai dish. But alongside of picking a, a national dish, the government of Thailand also says, we're going to invest in individuals in our country to learn how to cook Thai food properly. And so they start paying individuals to become chefs within the, the government, kind of a government-paid chef. And they're like, okay, this is great. Now we have all of these chefs who know how to make Thai food in an excellent way. What do we do next? Well, the government decides that the way that we increase our knowledge or the, individual, the world's knowledge of Thai food, Thai culture, is we've got to go. There's no point in us just training up all of these individuals in Thailand to make Thai food. It's very insular. It doesn't help the growth of Thai culture. And so what the government does is they start paying individuals to move all over the world and set up Thai restaurants. So if you've ever been in like a small town, and it's like, it's like Mexican restaurant, Mexican restaurant, Mexican restaurant, McDonald's, Subway, Thai food. That's there because of gastro-diplomacy. They sent people all over the world. This became insanely popular, especially in Australia, that Australia now has a different visa department for Thai chefs who are wanting to set up Thai restaurants in their country. It has it increased the growth of Thai food across the world because this government decided we need to go. We can't just sit around here and talk about how good it is that we have Pad Thai. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help us that we've just trained all of these individuals to sit here and make Thai food here in Thailand. What we have to do if we want to expand this is we've got to go. We've got to do things. We've got to set up these restaurants. We've got to make it accessible for people to go all over the world and share this food that we love. I love that story because, one, it's weird. It's about food. But it also shows you the importance of going and doing things. There's another passage that I referenced earlier from Acts chapter 1. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, this is after the resurrection, 
while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? We, we talked this morning in class about doubting versus clarification. This is clarification. These individuals now are sitting around this table and they want to know, what are we doing here? What is our role? Is this happening now? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The passage that, that Judah read earlier. And I'll just let you know, he was... So nervous. Sorry that he rejected your microphone, Jeff. Um, but we worked all weekend not to say samurai. Um, samurais are, are welcomed in the kingdom of heaven, but uh, we wanted to make sure that you got that right. <clears throat> but I want you to see the first thing that happens that they do after this. Where Jesus tells them, you are about to go into all the ends of the earth. The first thing, he says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I want you to think about that for just a second. They just received this, this word that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. That they are, are going to be commissioned, they are going to go, and the first thing, the first image that we get of what they are doing after this is they are standing there looking at the sky. Had a basketball coach in high school. Wasn't great. It's, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm five is eight, you know. Uh, 5'8 glasses, bleach blonde hair, didn't have the trajectory for Division I basketball. But he would always say, if you want to get out there, you can't ride the pond. And he was talking about my desire to sit on the bench. Um, it's like it's hot, sweaty, I don't know, it's like I'm going to get blocked, I don't want to be out here. But do you see what they're doing? They just have this experience with Jesus. And the first thing that they are doing is they're just standing there watching. Friends, I, I mentioned this last week. That's what a lot of churches are doing today. Standing there watching. Opening up the doors on Sunday saying, all right, let's grow this thing. That has been a, a church method of growth for centuries. Because we see that in Acts chapter 2. We see this, this idea there in Acts chapter 2 where, hey, we're studying the Word of God we're gathering together, we're breaking bread, we're, we're drinking the juice, probably not juice, but we're, we're drinking the juice, we're breaking bread, we're studying the Word, we're giving up all our possessions to all those that have need, and they're growing by the thousands. Thousands every time they gather, people are coming. But as I, I mentioned last week, that is not how church growth happens in our society today. I think that there's this, this desire for church to grow. I think there is. But for us to grow as a community, we, we've got to go. I mentioned that just a little bit last week. Rollin has asked me that he doesn't want anyone to paint their chest with his name and show up at his baseball games. Um, so that idea is out the window. But it's important for us as a church, if we desire to grow, that we also go. I mentioned this again last week, just a little bit of a restating we're never going to quit doing the things that we're doing. We're never going to quit serving at River City. 
We're never going to walk away from our commitment to the Arkansas School for the Deaf. I, I do want you guys to hold me accountable. This is the year that I learn ASL. Every year I walk out of that Christmas party and I'm like, this is the year I learn it. This is the year I learn it. And then I'm just like, hi guys. I can't. And those kids are calling me Santa Claus. I know that they're calling me Santa Claus. Um, there's some things I've got to work through. But we're, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep serving. But if we want to grow as a community, we've also got to go and do things that the community is doing. So it goes a little bit beyond serving. This is where where preachers kind of get into a weird situation because I want us to, when we go, I also want us to have fun doing it. I want us to look for opportunities of engagement that you all are interested in, that you will enjoy doing, but also will enjoy bringing your friends to. I believe that church growth now comes one by one, not thousands by thousands. It's these these relationships that exist beyond the church walls that when exposed to in the right situations, people realize, hey, you guys are a church? You guys are actually like, it's like, yeah, we we get together on Sundays, we hang out, we do stuff on Wednesdays, which is kind of weird sometimes. But that is how churches grow in 2023. It's these little things these little opportunities that you connect with people outside of the church walls. This individual that, that is, is way smarter than me recently wrote a dissertation on church relationships. It was me. I did it. Um, it was a joke. She was with me. But when I was studying with church relationships, is that church relationships, like I can't be the only relationship that an individual has. What I found in this study is that an individual to anchor themselves in a church has to have at least three connection points that go beyond the minister or the individual that brought them there. Meaning that if, if, if I bring somebody to this church, I've got to make sure that they're connected beyond me. And that's what I mean with these relationships that happen outside of the church. That's that first level. It's going beyond In his book, The Rise of Christianity, author Rodney Stark wrote this. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. In a city's face with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. I I use this quote because I I love the way that he describes the early church. Because if we're honest with ourselves, this is what our culture needs too. A reminder that there is hope. That there is a new way to live. But friends, people know what church is. People know that churches meet on Sundays. People people know that our doors are open. The thing that we have to do differently in 2024 is that we have to go. If we just leave our doors open waiting for people to come, they're not going to. But if we go to them, that is how people know that we are different. That we are willing to meet them where they are to connect with them, to build relationships with them that go beyond these church doors, and to show them that we are willing to go to the ends of the earth, because so would God.
Let's stand and sing together.